First Minute Capital is a $100 million seed fund, proudly backed by a number of tech founder LPs, including 30 unicorn founders. Part of our DNA is to take wisdom and lessons learned from one generation of successful entrepreneurs and share those lessons and pieces of advice with the next generation of successful founders. And that's really what this webinar series is all about. My First Minute is a fun opportunity to informally speak to some of the world's top founders on the first minutes of their careers, how they see the world, and general leadership advice. My name is Lena Venner, I'm an investor at First Minute Capital, and today I'm speaking to Ricardo Zaccone. Um, you were born in Rome. Your father was a dentist. Your mum was a Hungarian refugee artist um, who actually fled to Rome, I uh, read. Um, and then I was really excited to see that we share some similarities in our background and that you um, uh, studied economics, which, so we share that degree. Um, and then you actually went to be a consultant with LEK and BCG in Germany as well. So some hope for me, then your life became a lot more glamorous um, than mine. But uh, maybe starting at young uh, Ricardo, how would you describe uh, young Ricardo when you just, you know, finished your degree? What expectations did you have from life? Where did you think you would end up? Yeah, sure. I studied in a second. Basically, only one correction is my mom, she went to Rome to study actually arts. So she was she escaped okay. from Hungary to go to Munich. Uh, but regarding my my background, yeah. So so my my ambitions when I when I finished university, I studied. You see, I, I always wanted to become an entrepreneur, but I had no idea what to do. And so uh, I always tried in first in my studies, and then later when I when I chose the first job, which was to go into consulting, since I had no clue what to do, is to leave the doors as open as possible. That's why I studied economy. Uh, which didn't basically close down any doors. Then I still didn't know, then I went into consulting, still didn't know what to do, so it left me, left me doors open and allowed me to look into different things. And it's only until 1999 when uh, the internet boom actually started, it was in, in actually 98, that uh, I jumped ship and I went into, into startup. And in, so in 1999, you um, actually so you went to the web portal Spray, which was an online portal similar to um, Yahoo. Um, and I think that was a ridiculous growth curve. So you, you grew from 80 to 20 to 800 people in a year um, to then essentially crash in the dot-com bubble. Um, so when I read about this, I was just curious, did that discourage you from wanting to start something again, that sort of incredible scaling and then essentially um, falling a little bit flat? Uh, no, I think it was exactly the opposite, I think. I think that when many people who joined the internet boom coming from you know, highly paid jobs like investment banking or consulting, then decided to go back, I thought it was crazy because we learned so much. And I, I call it the, the, the most expensive MBA you can do. And then not to continue <laughs> in what you have learned and to go back, I think it was, was for me, and basically a, a closed door. But I, I definitely wanted to continue. And, uh, and so I was looking for opportunities. And then while I was looking and I came up with different ideas, then I received a call from Benchmark uh, in the UK. And they, they said, look, why don't you come over? And uh, we would like to sponsor you as an EIR, as an entrepreneur in residence. 
and that's why I moved from Germany to London. But uh, for me, it was clear that uh, I was not going back. After you get the the freedom, the the huge opportunities, and whatever, and basically, and the sky is the limit. You don't go back into into the box. Yeah, and I guess as a consultant, you're very much very much at will of your client, and um, once you're an entrepreneur, you're much more free to do uh, to do what you choose. Um, you then went, as you said, to be a VC for a bit or an EIR with Benchmark. And uh, rather than actually then starting something, you went to join an online dating site uh, called Udate. What got you excited about that? But basically, when I joined Benchmark, before joining Benchmark, I took some time off and I collected a list of different ideas, about 50 ideas when I came in. And one of these ideas was online dating. We developed when I was in Spray, uh, one of the first dating sites in Europe, and it became very big. Then it, later, when we, after we sold the company, it became Love at Lycos. Um, and we didn't have any more money for marketing, but it went through the roof. But we didn't ask for money. It was com a complete free service. And only after I left, I saw that there were dating services like Match.com in the US that were doing really, really well. So uh, I, I, this was the idea that I pushed more. But then we looked into several ways to enter this market. And one of these ways was to invest in, in an existing company called Udate, which was only active in the US and in the UK. I remember that the European market at the time was completely free. It was, there, was, there was nothing, nothing in terms of paid dating. And so one of the ways to enter the market was to invest in Udate and then to roll out their model into, into, the continent, into continental Europe. So this was the plan. And uh, Benchmark made an investment offer. They refused the offer from Benchmark because the company was profitable. And instead made me an offer to come on board and build out the market. So it was not just an offer as an employee. It was an offer basically to, mm -hmm. to build something on the back of, of their product and to build a, a leader, a global leader. Uh, but unfortunately, after three months after I joined, the, 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 uh, the founder, Mel Morris, got an offer to sell the company. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, because I didn't make you made as a much of as money, I, yeah. Yeah, well, no, I didn't make as much as I was hoping for because it was very early in the journey and there was a vesting period. But I made, uh, let's say, I made, I made a bit and that bit allowed me really to, start, to, start, uh, to start King, uh, which, uh, uh, which we started busy with my former colleagues from Spray and, uh, and uh, with Toby, who uh, I worked with at, um, at, uh, at UDATE. So I think it's funny because you started um, King with, you know, five other co-founders. So it was a huge co-founding team. And I think the only other very successful company that I can think of that had six co-founders is PayPal. There might be others, but that was the only one I could think of. Um, maybe tell us a little bit more about how that came about and also whether you would choose to pick that larger co-founding team again today, or is it mostly a headache? Look, if I knew how to program, if I knew how to design a product, if I knew how all these things, then I wouldn't need any founders, co-founders. But since I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm really good, I think, at picking good people. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I know, I, we were never greedy. So for us, it was not about making each of us the most. It was about being successful together. And uh, we started all with equal, equal shareholdings. And over time, as we took more risk and, you know, different people had different amounts they were willing to invest or, or could invest. And then we had different shareholdings, but uh, we always maintained an equal partnership. And I think this, this has been very important. 
And did those different shareholdings then also help you resolve disagreements? Or was it because everyone had their own um, domain, essentially, where they were making the decisions and that's how you didn't really have any disagreements? What happened when, uh, when you disagreed on something? I think that I can count maybe on one hand the times where we disagreed. Uh, we usually agreed mainly because of trust, because we had different areas of responsibility. So I'm not going to tell Thomas, who was the CTO, and Lars, who was the CTO, and busy what to do on the tech side, I'm not going to tell Sebastian what to do on the design side, etc. Um, but there are some times where we had strategic disagreements in what area and what, what way to go. And there we never leveraged, I have more shares than you, but we had an open discussion. And when we still couldn't resolve these agreements, we went to the board. And the board, as in any, any company, is the resolving uh, instance or the resolving authority. And so we presented our, our views, different views, and then the board took a decision in one way or another. Of course, we were also part of the board, but we had also independent board members and also our investors. And I think that the one time where we had a disagreement, uh, actually, I won the board the board uh, decision, and uh, we went our way, but it actually turned out to be the wrong way. So <laughs> <laughs> you'll never, you know, it's yeah. To take a decision is more important sometimes than taking than than you know, taking no decision. But the most important thing for us it was to be together and to and to stick together. Yeah, and you strike me as someone who uh, will be able to recognize when they did take a wrong decision and not have the pride to sort of glance over it. Mm. I guess you guys started out with, I think, six months of runway, six to eight months of runway when you started King, and it was largely your personal savings. Uh, you then ended up having your first like, near-death moment, uh, I think on Christmas Eve of 2003. Um, there's an episode with a broken fax machine. <laughs> um, we'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about how that came about. Yeah, so we had several actually near-death moments in the, in the course of King. Um, and that was the very first one because we put in actually all of our savings. I put in all my savings. I sold anything I had. Uh, I had a car before I sold the car. I had uh, probably everything. I went to stay in the, in the flat of a very good friend of mine for about two and a half years uh, in, his, in his guest room. And all my properties were in there. So it was really bare bone. And then uh, we had money. Uh, we were trying to raise money, but it was very difficult. 2003 was a nuclear year uh, in terms of funding. And, uh, and the one of our busy Mel, one of our investors, the founder of Udate, he, he said that he would invest in us, but he had an interesting structure with trustees where to decide. So it took much, much longer. And uh, so it was the day before Christmas. And uh, I had the flight the same, the same evening to go, to go back home. And, um, and the, the fax with the, with the signature from the trustees still didn't come. At the time, we said, we said fax machines. Um, and... <laughs> And uh, suddenly, suddenly the signature was coming through. I was literally on the floor and suddenly the signature came through or so the, 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 the fax came through and the fax machine broke in the middle of the of transmission. So we were in panic and uh, so we had to find a new fax machine. And uh, that's where I learned that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how, uh, how, how well or how badly funded you are, you never save on hardware. So on hardware. Yeah. Thank God for email. We got, um, uh, we got the facts. <laughs> exactly. In Germany, you still use the facts a lot. Anyway, you started uh, at King developing browser-based games. Um, maybe take the audience through 
really how your vision for King changed over the years, because obviously Candy Crush, uh, which King is most famous for, came much, much later. So what was the vision at the outset? We started with the model, which was comp offering competitive games on the web. Uh, the games were really freemium because you could play against other people for free. Uh, but then there was a model where if you were to compete with others, also for a small, uh, for a small entry fee, you could also win a prize. And uh, if you were the best, if you were the winner in the competition, that was basically one of the first actually real freemium models, which was purely digital. So there was no download. Uh, and this, everything went really well. We became number one in our space on the web, becoming the largest partner of large portals like Yahoo, for example, until <clears throat> Facebook started growing really fast. So Facebook was opened up for partners in 2007, but it's not until 2009 that really took off in games with Zynga and Farmville. And uh, I'll never forget, busy in the space of less than a year, uh, Yahoo, which was our largest partner, lost 45% of their traffic in games. And we were the number one in games in, on, their, on, their, on their property. So it, was, it felt as if someone had taken the, the floor under, under, under our feet. And that was a very, very difficult time. And that's where we had yeah, to change how we were doing things. You said, I think you said publicly that Facebook almost entirely crushed your company. So maybe that was near death moment um, number two. And uh, that's where you essentially also had to do quite a big pivot, correct? So maybe I think that's a very yeah. relevant moment to sort of look back on now because a lot of companies and a lot of founders on the call um, are also considering whether in this environment it's, they will have to or it's, or it's clever for them to pivot. So um, I'm really curious what sort of mental shifts were required within King at the time to bring about that really important but really drastic pivot um, as Facebook came about. Yeah, basically, you know, sometimes uh, you're forced to take decisions that otherwise you wouldn't do in the same way. And this is one of these, one of these moments. And uh, fundamentally, Facebook was growing incredibly fast. We were, of course, experimenting on Facebook uh, on the side, doing some side bets. But uh, it's different if you do a side bet or if everything is basically dependent, your, your life or death are dependent on it. And so suddenly, with this big increase in, in, in traffic on Facebook, we had to change the way how we're doing things. So we had to divide our team. We were about 110 people at the time in, in, uh, in two parts. 50% of the company continued working on the existing product on the web. And the other 50% of the company was divided in five smaller teams experimenting on how do we take our games to Facebook. Facebook did not allow us to take our original model to Facebook. So we had to completely change how we were doing things. And, uh, and that's where we started taking, instead of offering a full website of games, we started taking one game after the other and uh, tried to make instead of a very shallow game, you would compete against others uh, in uh, to make basically many, many levels of the same game. And this was the precursor of, of Candy Crush. And uh, one of these games succeeded after more or less a year and a half of experimentation. And that year and a half was very, very tough. So we lost people, mm -hmm. we, had, we lost some investors, and uh, we had some very hard discussions also in the board. Uh, so I can only say that you know, any, any change often is if you do it, you know, if, if, you do it, if you do it properly, if you do it well, and if you're lucky also at the same time, also has big opportunities. In our case, we would have never done it in this way if we had not been forced to do it in such a, an aggressive way. Uh, we might not have launched Candy Crush. We might not have launched on mobile. Mm. 
listening to you like this, it sounds, you know, people might think that you burnt a load of cash in this time. Uh, but actually, I think you took in some investment to, in 2005 with Index and Apex. And, um, and you told me you essentially never touched the money. Um, that's really unheard of, I think, in, in uh, today's or yesterday's bull market. Um, maybe help us understand how you're thinking about profitability um, versus growth and how you can have both. Look, I, I, you know, for me, freedom is the most important thing and also not being dependent on specific events is, is key. And if someone asks me, okay, what was the most important event in the history of you know, 17 plus years I've been, I've been uh, uh, doing King, it's not the moment where we launched Candy Crush. For me, the most important moment is January of 2005 when we became profitable. And we've been profitable since then. Uh, so uh, I think that profitability allows you degrees of freedom. You don't have to do what you know, potential investors want, they want to hear. Uh, you are, if you know, if something happens, you uh, and and you cannot raise the next round. You're not dependent on it because you're profitable. And uh, and for example, one of the things we discovered in this year and a half, which was really tough when we, you know, when Facebook was growing, is we had built our traffic was going down, new users had vanished, but we had a socket of very loyal players, and they stuck they stuck with us. So and those players kept us profitable during this entire time. Of course, we had, we had to be very conservative and be very careful how we spend the money. Uh, and then later on, when we launched Candy Crush uh, in Q1 of 2013, we launched Candy Crush in November 2012. In Q1 13, so a few months later, we, spawned, we spent $100 million in marketing. In Q2, $100 million. In Q3, $100 million. In Q4, almost the same amount. And we actually didn't raise a penny. So the company became profitable mm -hmm. with $1.5 million of investment in uh, the beginning, in uh, to, the beginning of 2004, and with our money also. And then uh, we raised additional money from Index and from, and from Apex, but we didn't touch that money. We only touched once to buy back some shares. That's really fascinating. And I think very rare in today's world. Uh, but, but I guess back then, it really wasn't an option um, to just continue to raise money if you weren't getting profitability. Uh, my advice, and also when, when you know, we, we invest with Sweet Capital, we invest in, in several companies, and I also always challenge uh, founders to, to think about you know, the next fundraising, and this money is only going to take you to the next fundraising, next fundraising, because maybe there is no next fundraising. So for example, now it's a very difficult moment in, in the market in general, uh, where fundraising is, more, is, more, is tougher than it, than it was before, uh, before COVID. You know, you never know. And so I think that, you know, if the model is right, um, you might not need an next fundraising. I think it's a good way to think, hey, let's, what do we need mm -hmm. to become profitable? And then to prove the model. And then from there, you can scale it. Maybe looking towards uh, sort of, so you launched Candy Crush on mobile. Um, you saw incredibly explosive growth. Uh, you went to IPO mid-2013 on the new stock exchange. Um, and the IPO probably wasn't quite the success you'd hoped for. Um, I actually pulled some of the headlines, which I thought were funny because everyone made a pun on Candy Crush. Um, so some of the headlines were like Sour Candy, King.com IPO does not crush it. Um, Candy Blush, I found one, which I thought was just incredibly funny. Um, what, in hindsight, was the issue? Because it saved, I think, about half a billion off your market cap. Does it, do you think it was timing? 
Um, would you have done it the same way again today? Uh, you know, I, I think, <laughs> first of all, it's definitely one of these pictures in my life at King. When we were all, when, with all the founders, we were sitting on the balcony and uh, we pressed the button to basically cough the bell. It's a red button, by the way. So that was the fun part. And we went down in the, in the arena and we bought, I bought the first, the first, the first share. And then, uh, and then trading kicked off and then suddenly the shares went dropped. So, you know, <laughs> a little bit of a strange experience, not the best experience from my point of view, but I think there was a lot of negative, uh, a lot of people busy saying that this is going to be a, a one hit wonder, Candy Crush is going to fall off the cliff after that. And of course it didn't help that uh, we, busy, we IPO'd in Q1 14 and we missed our first quarter in Q2 14. But uh, you know, if, if, uh, if I look at what happened now after many, after a few years, actually Candy Crush proved uh, to be a very, very strong game and you know, incredibly resilient. Uh, all, the, all the estimates and the, and the negative views of the time are completely dispelled after, after many years. Yeah. Um, if you, thinking from an investing perspective, because obviously we saw, um, we've got lots of investors on the call as well. Um, what would you say to someone who says, you know, I've, I don't invest in games because it's totally hit driven and it's basically luck if you hit something, can be a one hit wonder, as you say, um, but you may also end up with um, tons and tons of games that simply fail and there's no formula to getting a game uh, right. I think that, you know, it depends from your approach. If you launch games which are more or less proven, then you can already foresee how the game is going to perform more or less. But then you, at the same time, you can also foresee that the game is never going to be a number one hit because to become number one, you have to really innovate. And if you innovate, mm -hmm. you really only know the day when you launch. You can already know before you have different stages, of course, where you can optimize. Uh, but often, you know, we develop many, many games which never saw the light of the day at King. And, uh, and we spent a few years on them and then they never, when they never launched because when, when we launched them, they were not good enough in terms of retention first, in terms of monetization second. Uh, so I think uh, it's not an easy area to, as a startup to compete in. Uh, but mm -hmm. if you succeed, then the rewards are, are big because you, know, the, uh, you can scale the game uh, with, with profitable economics if the game, if the game is, is, in, is innovative. Um, and the another key learning I think is if you, have, if you have a brand, a game that performs really well, then you can keep the game up there for, for a very long time, if not forever, uh, by mm -hmm. continuously releasing new content, by refreshing the content of the game. So I think that uh, we are in a situation now or in a, in a, in a market with so many millions of apps on the, on the, in the store that uh, brands are more important than ever. It's like going to, to, you know, to a movie store or movie, a movie, in, 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 at a movie and then you, you need to decide what, what movie am I going to see tonight? And uh, there, there's so much choice that at the end you end up basically going to the same brands uh, that you use mm -hmm. or that you watched in the past because, because you know already what you get there and you like it. And uh, instead of releasing new movies or instead of releasing new games, we do the same thing in continuously releasing fresh content, new content, new levels, new features, uh, time, time limited content on a regular basis. And that's how we keep up the attention and the, and the, user, and the, and the usership. And I mean, Candy Crush has been, you know, in the top 10 uh, games in the app store pretty much since it launched on mobile. Um, 
what makes it so great? Why do we love it so much? What's huh. the formula behind it? Uh, I think that uh, there are a few things. On one side, it's the mechanism of play is a very well-known mechanism of play. It's a match three. So we did not invent the match three, mm -hmm. but we innovated in the way how you play a match three with uh, new modalities of play, uh, with many, many levels where you would play also with others, as you know, as you've seen from Candy Crush. So all of this basically was new at the time. We also innovated in the business model, uh, where in the way busy making freemium, really taking it really to, do the, to, the, uh, to a level where, where it's actually fun also to pay. Um, so I think it's, and at the same time, what is also really key, but I think this goes beyond games, is to have something that is actually simple. If you make something too difficult, too complicated, then you restrict the, the usership, the, the potential target group. Uh, of course, if you make it too simple, then it becomes boring. So it's, it's having mm -hmm. this very, uh, it's, it's a path. It's a very delicate path basically, to make it simple, uh, but, not, but not too easy, not too difficult and balancing that. And uh, there's a kind of a graph, a kind of a curve where sometimes you make it easier at the beginning and it becomes more difficult and it becomes easy again, et cetera. And how intentional were you in going after women as a demographic? Because I think it was one of the first mobile games that really um, skewed pretty heavily towards, uh, towards women. So was that an intentional move? Uh, yes, it was a very intentional move. Uh, the games we developed before, uh, on, before we launched on mobile, the games we developed on the web, uh, the Kati games is called casual games. Uh, those are, for example, Match 3, those are hidden object games, etc. word games. Uh, those games are particularly uh, attractive to a segment of, is it 60 to 70% of players are female, usually 18 plus, 20 plus. Uh, so we knew very well that that would be the, our, our user base. So it's not the young guy who is in, goes in and plays a fighting game. You had another big moment um, after your IPO. So you went about three years as a public company, um, and then you actually got an acquisition offer from Activision Blizzard, um, and that ended up being one of the largest transactions in the gaming space so far, um, acquisition of $5.9 billion. Um, and the way I understood it is that you essentially became their mobile games division. Um, tell us a little bit about what it was like when that offer crystallized and came about. Well, we had a long discussion in the board whether we wanted to take it or not. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, we decided to, to take the offer. And, and there were the considerations were, were primarily two. One was, of course, financial, a financial consideration. So it, it was a premium on the, on, the, on the at the time value on the stock exchange. Uh, but secondly, the other consideration was also the fit with, uh, with Activision. And, uh, and we were thinking primarily of the team. Do we fit in the culture? Do we fit? Uh, as overall strategically, and we thought actually the fit was, was actually a perfect fit, both in terms of mobile versus console and PC, but also in terms of category of games. So we would cover the, basically the casual games focusing on a mainly female audience versus Activision having games primarily focused on a younger male audience. And, uh, and, and I think it proved, it proved correct. And uh, we're not the mobile division of, uh, of Activision, meaning Activision, they develop their own, uh, their own mobile games. Uh, but I think, of course, from a mobile point of view, uh, we have the largest user base. Yeah, and you drove uh, drove a lot of their revenues. Um, and yes. 
through big changes and, and profit, more importantly, um, through those big changes, what I'm really curious about is, you know, how do you keep the best people motivated to work on the same product or the same franchise, at least, um, for, almost, you know, for almost a decade? And how do you manage to retain your top talent throughout that? Is that by being an amazing CEO and building a great culture? Um, or what were you, you know, what, what were your tricks in being able to retain such amazing talent? Yeah, I think it's, uh, there are several com bits or parts to, 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 to this answer or to answer this question. The first one is um, the generic approach I have is, first of all, is I think I'm pretty good at, at finding good people. But then I think the reason why I look for good people is because I think that they're better than I am. And so I give them the job, <laughs> which basically means, hey, you know what, you know better than I do how to do it, you do it. I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. So I'm not a micromanager. Uh, and so I give them a response. I give people responsibility and I expect them to, to develop the, the plan on how to actually succeed in a specific, in a specific task. And of course, you know, I, we discuss it and, and I challenge them. Uh, but primarily, you know, if you get good people on board, don't tell them then what they should do, but let them do fundamentally. That's the first bit. What happens, uh, this means, what so, happens when they make a mistake? So that, I was about to say, this means also letting them do mistakes. Sometimes, you know, I have a disagreement that, with them. And, uh, and I think in that case, and I think this might be a mistake. Uh, sometimes I'm proven wrong, sometimes I'm proven right. But I let them do that. Uh, otherwise, uh, you, you, you know, it's, it's fundamentally important. To, to do things and also to make mistakes, to understand what is right and what is wrong. And many times I've been proven wrong. Um, sometimes proven also right, but you know, it's, it's not important to be right or wrong. Important is to be fast in adapting to what is right or not to do or stop doing what is wrong. So that's the first thing. The second thing is how do you keep people, actually how do you keep people during difficult times? So in, those, in that year and a half, of course, people were telling me, hey, we need to be on Facebook. I said, I, I know we need to be on Facebook. But, you know, one thing is to be, to say, the other one is, okay, but how do we get on Facebook? So uh, I think that uh, you can choose in this, in this, in this moment, so say, you know, to be an optimist and to be a, you know, to promise, uh, to make a, a beautiful promise, but uh, people are not stupid. So I, I always thought that people who work for me, you know, as we spend a lot of time to finding the best, they're actually smart. They're really smart. So we need to bring them inside and help be part of the solution and not telling them, hey, everything is beautiful and don't worry. And so uh, when we had these issues where we were not on Facebook and people were also getting offers from other companies, I always said, look, I, I had a beautiful picture, the presentation once where we had a character called Mordillo uh, and uh, <laughs> you see this character on, on the beach. And then you had an umbrella and, and Mordillo was, was sipping a cocktail on the beach under the sun. But then if you zoomed out, you would see that the beach was actually an hourglass and the sand was flowing down. And so I said, look, this is where we are now. We're still profitable. We have a loyal customer base. But if we do not solve, if we do not manage to get to Facebook, it's only a matter of time that we will be gone. And so this is basically very early on. This was the image. Mm -hmm. And from there, we said, okay, how are we going to do that? We're taking right now, we are dividing the company in two parts. I'm sorry for the 50%. Thank you so much for helping us to continue the business and staying profitable that you are allowing us to take the experiment in these other five areas. And uh, you know, it's less, it was less fun to continue working in the existing business, but they, the reason why they were continuing instead of working on the more funky projects on Facebook 
was because they were helping the rest of the company. And the rest of the company were, was taking these different bets. Um, and, um, and so I think transparency is very, very important. And also, you know, treating people as adults. Uh, that's the second way, mm -hmm. the second part of to your, to your, to your question. And, and the third part is, you know, sometimes you can't hold people. You know, sometimes I have people coming to me and, uh, you know, I was going into a meeting knowing that he had resigned, he or she had resigned. And my task was to keep the person. And when I went in the meeting, I said, okay, tell me, you know, what are you doing? What, you know, what, where are you going or, or what kind of things are you doing? And they told me, for example, yeah, I want to start my own company. I said, hey, great. You know what? Go, <laughs> just do it. So I always try, first of all, to put on the hat of, um, of, uh, of the person who works for me and try to understand what makes sense for them rather than what makes sense for the company, rather than trying to convince the person to stay in the company. If it didn't make sense, I would tell them, look, I think it's a great offer, you know, go, have fun. And I hope that they stay in touch. And uh, many times people, you know, some things went well, some others went less well. When they went well, I'm super happy for them. When it goes less well, then, mm -hmm. you know, the, the doors are always they open come to come back. Yeah the, door, yeah, the door was always open. Amazing. Um, maybe turning briefly, um, spending a little bit of time on what you did since you um, stepped out of your CEO, CEO role at King, which was um, mid-2019. Um, maybe from like an emotional level, what was it like to after, I think, almost 17 years giving up uh, your CEO seat uh, in what was your baby and really um, what you grew to such amazing scale? First of all, I never look back, I always look forward. Uh, but I think that, you know, I met some amazing, I worked with amazing people. It was, a, it was been always a joy. I'll never forget, we organize always once a year, a big event called InfoMarket, where 2000 people, people come together and I, you know, I usually open it, I present, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling when you see so many people and uh, amazing people. So, uh, of course, you know, it's, it's a bit sad to not to be, not to, to do that anymore. But it's, it has not been a, you know, suddenly I give the keys, bye-bye. It's been a process over time where I've been handing over my, my, my role and my task over a period of time, which was a longer period of time. And so I, I, it has never been an abrupt, uh, an abrupt uh, uh, leaving, basically. Um, and, you know, I, I always look forward. I, uh, I'm busier than ever, actually, even now in, in, in these times. I reset <laughs> up with my co-founders a... Uh, a, a venture, a venture, venture, venture capital company. It's actually an angel fund, more or less. But it's only our money, so we didn't raise any money from outside, and uh, and we we invest early on in the things we think we understand. We focus on business and consumer, mobile, and we try to help others basically with what we have learned. Um, and then I said that also. Sweet capital, which I think um, we've got lots of uh, your founders on the call as well. Um, so we're mixing first minute and sweet capital uh, portfolio on the call. So hopefully lots of listening. Yes, um, and, I mean, we have Pippa and Christian on the call, Pippa, and they're amazing. I've got one more question. Uh, then I've got a super short quickfire round. And then I'd love to um, sort of uh, leave a little bit of time for Q&A uh, where people can simply uh, message their questions and we'll unmute them. Um, and we'll finish, um, I think, at 10 to at 10 to. Um, six if that's okay with you um and one thing i did before the interview was basically go and talk to some people who have either worked with you, with you as an advisor uh you've been a mentor to them i went to speak to one of your co-founders um and 
just to hear what they say about you. Um, and I'm going to read it out. <laughs> One of them said, um, energetic, inspiring, insightful. Um, someone else said energetic as well, actually generous, positive. Um, and someone said he's a timeless Italian gentleman born with unshakable resilience and integrity. Um, as a mentor, he's supportive beyond limits. As a friend, he's the most fun and energetic, especially on the dance floor. And as a human being, he's very generous. Uh, so here's my question. How are you so likable? Um, and what's the secret sauce in just getting everyone to like you? Because I don't think I met a single person who has a bad word to say about you. I think you must have interviewed my friends. <laughs> um, I, was just, I was just curious, like, do you ever get stressed? Do you ever get angry? Um, or is this just your composure that, um, that's always positive? I think that, you know, in Italy they say that if you get angry, you do two, two efforts. One is to get angry, and the second is to, be, is to distress after you got angry. So I don't think there is a point in getting angry. Uh, there are very, it takes a lot before I get angry. I get angry only if I see that people do not put the effort uh, and that they also, they don't, they, don't think it, they don't think it through. So I really want, I, I expect from, from people really to, with whom I work at least, or, or to actually to, to think things through, but also more importantly, to make an effort really, to put their best. And, uh, and if I think, if I see people actually don't care, then, then that's where uh, I usually get angry. But uh, I, it takes a long time, I don't get angry. I, I think there is no point. <laughs> And now, time for Q&A. We're going to open the floor to questions. I have one from actually one of our portfolio founders, Jill, um, founder of Robin Games in LA. Um, Robin Games is a mobile gaming studio also for women, going up to the same demographic as Candy Crush. Um, and I think, Jill, you should be unmuted. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, very well. We I can. Do. Perfect. Hi, Ricardo. Uh, Hi. This has been great. My question is, the UA landscape is crowded in mobile games, especially in casual today. And what would your advice be for a new studio releasing their first game? <laughs> My advice is uh, to create something that is uh, better than one is out there, basically innovative, uh, and to really study the mechanics which are proven in games that are successful, uh, and decompose the mechanics that are successful. So do not innovate everything. So try to take the bits and pieces that actually do work, but make the core game, the core, the, the core game, the game mechanics basically different from what is out there. Otherwise, it's very difficult to succeed in, in this market. Because if it's, you know, if a product is new and is great, marketing is cheap. If the product is already okay. known, marketing is very expensive, especially now. But now there's an opportunity because of COVID, because actually advertising is cheaper than what it was before. Next up, we've got Lulu. Uh, so obviously, you know Lulu well, founder of Kakua. Uh, you've been a super valuable advisor to her. Um, and Kakua, for all of those of you who don't know, um, is an edutainment business based um, out of Nairobi in Kenya. And Lulu is fantastic, Lulu, by I the think way. You're She's an incredib incredible founder. She's amazing. <laughs> Ciao, Lulu. <laughs> nice uh, to hear you. Nice to hear you too. 
Um, you, you mentioned um, some of the brilliant ways you were innovative in your approach to making Candy Crush from business model to game design. Um, I was wondering, what were some innovative things you tried in marketing? In, uh, in marketing, well, uh, I think in it, basically how we started was with pure digital marketing. Uh, first on, on Facebook, where we could segment extremely well by the user groups. And then at some point we said, I think that, that's, you know, because the cost of, of marketing on Facebook was going up. Uh, and then we experimented with TV. And we did TV in, uh, in specific locations where we had never done advertising before in order to isolate those metrics. And then uh, we saw that actually TV, especially when you couple TV with, uh, with digital, can perform really, really well. And when the digital became very expensive, it was actually cheaper to buy TV than, than buying digital. So we coupled then TV and digital. So whatever we did, actually, we, every, we, everything we did, we did it in a way that we could measure it. Um, I think, at the, but if I, if I may give you an advice, I think in this advice, which is not just for games, I think the reason why we could scale Candy Crush so fast, spending so much money, is because we knew exactly how much we could spend. And so we started first understanding, analyzing what is the value of a customer over one week, over one month, over two months, the customer lifetime value, not only of the single customer, but also of how many customers this customer would actually provide us uh, virally. So we knew that every user at the time was providing us other, three, other two users. Um, and then uh, knowing exactly when we, when we buy, what kind of customer do we buy, the quality of that customer versus another platform, and, and how much does it cost us. So we know that, for example, if we buy a user with segmentation on Facebook, it's probably going to be worth more, but it's also going to cost us more than a user who we, we buy, I don't know, with a different type of advertising. So it's difficult to give you a price. There is no one price. There are millions, so there are hundreds of thousands of prices depending on the country you buy, on the platform you buy, on the time of the year, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you optimize all of these, then you can do marketing very profitable. So get good people on the, on the marketing side to understand the numbers behind and can and, and do a lot of experimentation as my advice. The last one uh, we've got from Benit Katari, who um, is the founder of Techni Capital in New York, which is a tech-focused hedge fund. I would love to know if there are peers in the gaming industry, either individuals or companies, that uh, you've been really impressed by and that you continue to be impressed by in terms of product innovation or business strategy around the world? Um, and, and if so, what is it about what they're doing that you find so impressive? So I think yeah. maybe just to repeat the question, it, it, it was a little bit um, a struggle to hear for me, but I think you said, what are the peers in the gaming world that you've been impressed by, either from a product perspective or how they've executed? Is that right, Benit? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you I think that, him. yeah, I think that the, the difficult thing is to stay at the top uh, in, my, in my eyes. And I think that uh, if you stay at the top is because you're doing many things right, because you take many risks, uh, because you uh, put a lot of effort in, in experimentation, not only with new games, but also in the existing games. And there are a few companies which are at the top. We are at the top. Uh, Ilka, you know, from Supercell, they've done an incredible job. The guys at Playrix are doing an incredible job. So those are a few of the companies that uh, I think have been doing really well. Then there are startups, but as I said, I think it's now 
a more difficult market than what it used to be, you know, uh, even a few even a few years ago. Um, but uh, you know, I learned one thing that uh, it's an area where, as as any other area, that where if you innovate, uh, you can always you can always get through and uh, and, and and succeed, especially if you if you. Yeah, but you, but you need to innovate. Which isn't always easy. Um, thank you so so much, Ricardo. Uh, you've been super generous with your time. We've run over a little, um, so apologies for that. Uh, but I think it's been fascinating and really such a privilege uh, to get to interview you like this. <laughs>